Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. I say, well, that's interesting. Um, when you examine the New Testament, you will find that biblical leadership in the church is based on the complementary roles of elders and deacons. And we're going to look at that in depth. Um, I want to introduce it tonight. And so this uh, lesson is going to be simply an introduction. Uh, and then we'll get more in depth as we go from week to week. Let me start out with some personal notes first. Uh, being a typical Southern Baptist preacher boy, I went to a Southern Baptist college, uh, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And um, after pastoring my first church, God led me to leave the pulpit where I was. I was 23 years old pastoring a church. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, many times I still don't know what I'm doing, Gordon, but that's beside the point. And uh, anyway, I felt led to join this church that was just one county over, and a lot of fun things were happening. I met a guy there, the pastor. He kind of became my unofficial mentor once I made the decision to go there. Um, I ended up meeting my wife, and we got married a, a year later. And um, <clears throat> the church was going along, and in about three to four years' time, I was called as their associate pastor and ultimately as their next senior pastor. I was there for 12 years. Um, I witnessed the church. It was born out of a traditional church that birthed a contemporary church, and um, they, they were in a metal building, like a warehouse building, and uh, they, they started from scratch. Uh, they didn't have any bylaws. They didn't have any constitution. They were going to get that done, but... Uh, at the moment when they started as a new church plant, they didn't have that. And so anyway, long story short, they decided that they needed leaders in the church. And uh, I still don't know quite how it happened, um, but they decided that they was going to vote on, on, on the structure, and they ended up voting on elders and deacons. And, and at the time, I was quite new there. Uh, I was like a calf looking at a new gate. I was like, I've been to uh, college, and... And I've pastored a church, and I haven't seen this animal before. This is not. This does not make sense. And so I decided to have a um, a little uh, a powwow with God. I began to argue with God about what I was seeing uh, until He showed me uh, things in the Scriptures. For instance, the first question I had is, um, "Elders and deacons, is that biblical?" And as He began to show me. The Lord showed me that there were elders in the Old Testament, there were elders in the early church, and there's even elders in heaven. And so I had to back off and go, well, there's something about it in the Bible. And then my next question was, well, is it Baptist? And uh, as I did a little research, I discovered that the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name is William B. Johnson. He was a pastor in South Carolina. He was an advocate for a plurality of elders. When I went to the local Southern Baptist Association at the time, which was Western District Baptist Association in Paris, Tennessee, uh, I asked to look at their books and their records. And what I discovered, I was really surprised. Um, just like here in Kentucky, the, the, the local associations in Tennessee tend to be county by county. They don't have to be, but most of them tend to be that way. And so Western District mostly is Henry County with a few churches from uh, another county. 
But when I began to dig into the history of the association, I discovered that way back in the 1800s, there was a point in time before all of the um, local associations started that Western District was the first one in West Tennessee. That if you go back to the beginning, the Western District Baptist Association covered all of Western Tennessee, parts of Western Kentucky, and parts of Alabama, going way, way, way back. And uh, what I discovered is that pastors were called elder in the early 1800s. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up hearing older folks at the time, when I was a little boy, refer to pastors and ministers as reverend. You remember that? Reverend? I, I remember being a kid, and I would go get my grandparents' mail, and, you know, my... my uh, my grandfather on my dad's side, he was a Pentecostal preacher, and it always said Reverend Meggs, which is to this day, I can't stand anybody to call me Reverend Meggs because I feel like they're calling me my grandfather, you know. And so anyway, um, I, uh, I remember that. And so I began to study this history, and it was real fascinating to me. Um, about the same time, I noticed that when you read the history books, that somewhere around or after the Civil War, that term kind of just dropped out. I don't know why. I don't have an explanation for you. I'm sure there's some good um, theories as to why, but I don't know why. And then not long after all that, as I was in this process of discovering what the Scriptures say and what, what does history say, about that time I also was asked to do a wedding. And um, it was a couple of people in the church but they wanted to get married in a sister church in the same community because one of them had grown up there when they were a little girl. So here I am three miles down the road in the same community from the church where I'm pastoring at the time, and we're fixing to do a wedding. And while I'm waiting for the wedding, it's a very small country church, you know, just one aisle down the middle, two sets of, of, of pews, and then you've got everything that you're used to behind me. I noticed that back here there's a door, and it's to the pastor's study. And so I kind of gravitate, gravitate toward that door, and as I'm hanging out by that door just waiting for everything, I notice there's plaques on the wall. And so I began to look at these plaques, and one of them is really, really old. And as I began to read it, it's telling a story about something that had happened a long time ago in the church, and it says, Elder so-and-so. Now, this is a Southern Baptist church. And I'm like, wow, this, I'm, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing glimpses and pieces of history, of, of Southern Baptist history that I didn't know existed. And um, what I want to share with you tonight, I'm kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll full disclosure here, I'm kind of borrowing some ideas from this book tonight just simply to introduce it. If you've ever heard of Bill Hull, um, you've heard me talk about John Maxwell, he's a leadership guru. Well, Bill Hull is a discipleship guru, and he wrote a book a few years ago uh, called The Disciple-Making Church. And that's kind of, I want to I use a little bit of the ideas from his book just to introduce this tonight. Uh, he, he makes a good point and observation um, where he begins to look at what it was like to be one of the, one of the disciples that followed Jesus. And then when Jesus, fast forward, death, burial, resurrection, um, ascension to heaven, and now in that meantime before the Holy Spirit comes, we're, we're waiting. 
like what's next, okay? So, so kind of get in that point of the story and imagine what it would have been like if you were one of the uh, disciples that followed Jesus. As long as Jesus was here, it was great. Like, no matter what the problem was, no matter what the issue, concern, or question you had was, all you had to do was just ask Jesus, okay? That's all you had to do. I mean, he was physically, during his earthly ministry, he was physically right there. You could, you could speak to him, you could see him, you could touch him, uh, you could shake his hand. I mean, he was right here, right then. And uh, all you had to do was just ask Jesus. Now, fast forward to the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up boldly and preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. The Holy Spirit has come, right? Jesus said, I've got to go that I might send another. Okay? And and, uh, He told us about that. The Holy Spirit comes. And now we have a different way of doing things than what we did before. Let me explain that. The terms that Bill Hull uses, and I definitely want to explain these terms so I don't want anybody to misunderstand, but it does make sense to me. He says there's two models of churches. There's Christ-centric and there's church-centric. Now, if you're like me, if you're spiritual-minded, you're going to say, well, for... $300, Alex, I'll take Christ-centric because that sounds like the better answer, right? But but hear hear me out for a minute. The Christ-centric or Christ-centered model is all about when Jesus was physically present. All you had to do was just ask Jesus. And because He was physically present, just let, let Jesus handle it. Now, Jesus has ascended to heaven He has sent the Holy Spirit. What do we do now? Because we don't physically have the presence of Jesus like that. Just turn to Him as if if I'm looking at Gordon saying, okay, what do we do now? So now it's a little bit different. It's a different model. And so at this point, I want to help you understand that we're going to look at three different churches tonight in the book of Acts that kind of traces how the gospel went from Jerusalem to the then known world and what they learned. And the title of my lesson tonight is The Structure of Disciple-Making Church. The Structure of of a Disciple-Making Church. And what you will find is this has everything to do with leadership. Okay, I'm laying a long runway, but I will will get the plane in the air, so stick with me for just a moment. Uh, Bill Hull and I'll mention this, this is a quote. He says, there are five major changes that will be necessary for any church that wishes to move from being Christ-centric to church-centric. And I've defined those terms now. Christ-centric is referring to when Jesus was physically on earth and you could just turn to Him and say, let's just ask Jesus. Church-centric is He's now in heaven, we have the Holy Spirit, And we're still called to follow Him, but He's not physically in front of us, in front of our eyes like He was then. It's the same, but it's also different. Here's what He says. He says, five major changes will be necessary when you shift from just ask Jesus to what do we do now. One of them is leadership. He says, in leadership, you move from Christ leading the apostles because He was physically present to 
two elders leading a congregation. Then the second one, in guidance, you move from Christ's personal presence to the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Word of God and prayer and, you know, just sharing between other believers. In training, you move from Christ preparing leaders alone to a leadership community engaged in multi-level training. In outreach, you move from individual evangelism to evangelistic teamwork. In pastoral care, you move from Christ meeting everybody's needs to Christ meeting the needs through the gifts of the body of the, of the church. Okay? So you see this shift now. And what I want to say is there is definitely a shift that happens because when the Holy Spirit came, He distributes the spiritual gifts and nobody has a monopoly on them. Like, I don't know of anybody, I've never met a Christian that has all of the spiritual gifts. And quite frankly, you're not going to find one, okay? Uh, the only one that could have had all of the gifts would be Jesus, and that's because He's the Son of God. Does that make sense? And so, Christ has, by design, on purpose, He has now given us the Holy Spirit that gives each one of us a gift or maybe more than one gift. And by nature, we as His people, as a body of believers, are now, we're fully dependent on Him, obviously, but we're interdependent with one another because we're the body of Christ. Okay, We're His hands, we're His feet, we're His voice, so on and so forth. So my position tonight... I always like to do this when I'm doing something new. Um, my position tonight and moving forward during this uh, series on biblical leadership, my position, and I don't say this to impress you, but those of you that like to dig and do your research, if you know what terms I'm using and what they mean, you can understand where I'm coming from. So that's why I say this. But my position is elder-led congregationalism. You might say, well, what is that? Well, maybe I should start by saying what it's not, okay? Uh, there are different uh, faith groups out there that have elders, and some of them, without naming names, some of them practice elder rule. I don't believe the New Testament teaches elder rule. Elder rule, now every word I'm saying right now matters, okay? Elder rule means that the elders rule the church. And if the elders rule the church, then you really don't have much of a need for business meetings and so on and so forth because the elders, they rule the church. So when I talk about biblical leadership and elders, that's not what I'm talking about, just to be clear. There's a difference between elder rule and elder-led. And I'm not just splitting splicing hairs here, I'm really wanting to make a distinction between these two ideas. Elder rule means that elders rule the church. Elder-led means they simply lead the church, but congregationalism, when you say elder-led congregationalism, it's really two sides to the same coin. We know what congregationalism is. We believe that and we practice that as Southern Baptists. Congregational 
Lism simply means that the congregation, the, the body of believers here at Pleasant Hill, is fully autonomous, okay? Nobody from the outside could come in and tell us what to do. That we are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that as a congregation, when we gather together to meet and conduct business of this local body, the congregation has the final voice and the final vote. That's congregationalism. And some people might think, well, does elder-led, uh, does it conflict with that or does it complement that? I would say it complements that, okay? Um, many, many Southern Baptist churches are single, elder-led, congregational churches. Again, I'm using terms specifically for a reason. What do I mean by single elder-led? A senior pastor that is discharged with the responsibility and the authority to serve as the under-shepherd and leader of the church while also honoring congregationalism. When I say elder-led, I'm saying it with the understanding that there's more than one. So to put this in modern, contemporary terms, what I'm saying is I advocate and believe in team leadership that is congregational. Again, I'm not trying to say this to cloud the issue or to confuse anybody. I'm really trying to be uh, straightforward with my terms. And I don't mind bringing these up again as we go along. Right now, I'm introducing it, and so you're hearing this for the first time going... Okay, give me an example, right? Give me some pictures. Well, let me show you first of all. I just want to take one book of the Bible. I'm going to cite two different passages from it to show you that both of these things coexist. Okay? This is, a, this is an example. For example, in 1 Peter, okay, in, in Peter's first letter, and we know that he wrote uh, 1 Peter. I didn't have this... Uh, particular verse, uh, Devin, but I'm going to read the, the very first verse of the letter, uh, or the first couple of verses, just to show where this all went. But let me read 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, five provinces, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and, and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May, peace, uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Paul wrote this letter to believers that had been scattered and dispersed across five provinces. Okay, And here's what he says. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he affirms something that we as Southern Baptists would call well, let me back up even further than that. As Protestants, we would say we believe in the priesthood of the believer, right? The, 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 the idea of the priesthood of the believer is that, that bedrock belief that we don't have to go through another man to get to God, that we can go straight to God. We don't have to have a, a, an earthly priest in the sense that, say, the Catholics believe. Uh, and then when we read the book of Hebrews, we discover that Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he's the reason that we can go before the throne of grace in our time of need. So look in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5. 
Remember, Peter's a fisherman, and I'm amazed by what he's sharing here. But in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to Him, and the Him is Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God uh, through Jesus Christ. So, that paints a picture of what the church is like. That we all become this house of God that He's building, and we all are called priests, which is kind of cool because you read Revelation chapter 1, John said the same thing. So, there's that idea of the priesthood of believers. It emphasizes the congregational aspect of what we're familiar with, right? However, in the same exact letter, go to chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I exhort the elders. And again, when you study what I'm reading here, you'll find out this is not a term referring to older people over a certain age. Uh, The term elder here refers to an office of leadership in the church. And notice it's plural. And so he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now we know that Peter was a disciple. We also know that he was one of the twelve. He was an apostle. But here he is saying, I am a fellow elder. Okay, And he's talking to the elders. And he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you and not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Again, you'll note that Peter uses the term elder, uh, shepherd there in verse 2, which uh, only once or twice in the New Testament is translated pastor. Uh, And then overseer, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly. Uh, He's using those terms interchangeably to refer to the same person, to refer to the same office. And so here is Peter that is writing his letter to believers that are scattered across five provinces. I do believe they believe in the priesthood of the believer, but he's also reminding them of plurality leadership, team leadership in the form of elders. And they are compatible. Okay, they are compatible. Now, with that said, let's dive into this. So the meat of my lesson tonight is this. I want to take a few minutes and look at three churches in the New Testament, all from the book of Acts. And I use these three, thanks to the research from Bill Hull, because of what they illustrate and what they teach us. The first church is Jerusalem. I mean, that's where the church was born, right? On the day of Pentecost, there in Jerusalem, they were gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came. Peter boldly stood up and he began to preach. And all of these Jews that had come from 
who knows where outside of the nation of Israel they had come. Uh, and uh, they're hearing the gospel in the language of where they've come from. And at first, people can't quite figure it out. They're like, what are these people babbling about? Are they drunk with wine? And Peter stands up and says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. And people are hearing the, the Word of God in their language. And Peter begins to preach the gospel. And 3,000 people get saved. The church was born in Jerusalem. Jerusalem really was the first church. And um, give you a few, a few, not too many, but a few examples of Scripture. Let's jump to Acts 15 real quick. Um, the term elder is first occurring in chapter 11, but I'm going based on theme right now. Uh, in Acts 15, you, you, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know what I'm about to say. In Acts 15, things came to a crisis. They came to a, a, a boiling point in the history of the early church. And here's what I mean by that. Um, all these people got saved, and they began to share the gospel, and more people got saved. And just the way Jesus wanted it, He wanted it to start in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. He wanted it to have a ripple effect. He wanted it to continue to spread outward and outward and outward. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. He said, make disciples of all nations. He never wanted it to remain in a local area. He wanted it to go out into the world. And so, by the time we get to Acts 15, enough Gentiles have heard the gospel and believed, and they're saved, that now these Jewish believers, with all their history and their traditions, some of them are having a hard time with it. Because they're the religious insiders, and the Gentiles are the religious outsiders. And they began to look at the things that they were taught growing up, the law of Moses, and the customs, and the rituals, and stuff. And what about circumcision? The, you know, even Abraham was circumcised, the patriarch of the Jewish people. And it's supposed to be a sign of God's covenant with his people. And so some things they make concessions on, but they latch on to circumcision and they can't let it go. And they go, you know what? These Gentile Christians that are coming, coming in uh, to the kingdom of God, well, they got to be circumcised or they're not saved. And Paul, who was well-versed in all of that, says, whoa, whoa, no, no. And so things come to a, a head, and they go to Jerusalem, and they meet with the apostles uh, who are still there. And I'll pick up in verse 4 of Acts 15. I'm not going through it. I just want, to, want you to understand why they were there, and then we'll focus on who was there. In Acts 15, verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, that is Paul and the people that came with him, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. So, I think it's neat that the emphasis is on the church first, then the leaders. Which is kind of backwards the way people look at it today, isn't it? So, we knew that the apostles were there. They were all Jewish. But now we realize that at this point in time, the first church in Jerusalem, they not only had the apostles of Christ, but they had elders. And if you read the rest of Acts 15, when they go into the room to have their important meeting, 
who's in the room? The apostles and the elders and the people that Paul brought with him. And they, they work this thing out. Now, go to Acts 6. Go, go a little backwards now. In the early days there of the church in Jerusalem, they had a problem. In Acts 6 verse 1, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews, that means the Greek-speaking Jews, against the Hebraic or the Hebrew-speaking Jews, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that refers to the apostles, they, they summoned the whole company of the disciples and they said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole company. And then it tells you the seven men that they chose. And then in verse 6, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, many believe, uh, many conservative Bible scholars, including myself, uh, believe that that is the prototype for deacons there in Acts chapter 6. And so by the time we get to Acts 15, I would say that based on Acts 15 and Acts 6, I would say that the first church in Jerusalem had elders and they had deacons based on these particular texts. Now keep in mind, that's just the, the mother church, the original church, the first church, Jerusalem. Now let's shift forward to the next point in the timeline. The second church I want to highlight for a, a few moments is Antioch. How many of you have heard of Antioch? Uh, Antioch was the missions church, okay? Um, let's jump to Acts 11. I've got, I've got three texts very quickly I want to highlight about the Antioch church. The Antioch church, according to Bill Hull, he says that's the mission church. Uh, people that love missions, that want to you know, talk about... I didn't know until the other day, uh, Darren, that uh, Lottie Moon at one point lived in Danville, Kentucky. I did not know that. Um, but uh, apparently there's a... Uh, one of those historical markers that you see uh, in Danville in front of First Baptist when you're going out of town. I had no idea there was a connection there. Didn't know it. Well, anyway, um, Antioch is a missions church and the mother of missions. So in Acts 11, let's look at that one for a minute. In Acts 11, verse 22, it says, News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. In other words, Antioch is in Gentile country, and God has done a work because remember uh, on the day of Pentecost when all these Jews from surrounding areas came to Jerusalem, they heard the gospel in their own language, they ultimately left Jerusalem and went back to wherever it was they were living in the Roman Empire, and that's one way that the gospel you know, got out. Well, the bottom line is at some point, uh, people in Antioch, they get saved and God starts doing a thing there and the leaders in Jerusalem hear about it and they send Barnabas to go check it out. And so in verse 23, when he, referring to Barnabas, arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts 
For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And then it says, then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Now, Saul is the Apostle Paul. Okay, Saul was his name before he got saved. And then after he became saved, he was referred to as Paul. But at this point in the story, he's already been saved, but he doesn't go by his Christian name yet. Okay, So he goes to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now that's very important. Did you know the word Christian is only in the New Testament? I haven't looked this up lately, but I think it's three times. Okay? Three times. It's not many, but I think it's three times. And it says the disciples, which refers to followers of Jesus, were first called Christians at Antioch. Again, a shift. It's amazing to me how much language changes. Okay? And so... In the mother church, the first church, the Jerusalem church, they're all disciples. By the time we get to Antioch, the missions church, now they become known as, referred to by, as Christians. Okay, Christians. And uh, moving forward, you're going to see less of the use of the word disciple and other words instead will be used. And I think, and Bill Hull makes a good argument, I think that that merely illustrates the very thing I said at the very beginning tonight of doing church when Jesus is right here, just ask Him, just ask Jesus, to when He's no longer physically present, but we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we're looking around with our eyes because we're used to walking by sight and not by faith, and then we go, what do we do now, what do we do now? There's a shift that happens. And this illustrates that shift. Jump real fast to Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas was one of them. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manane, and a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, that same Saul, who we will learn better known as Paul the Apostle. And as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, I'm waiting for somebody to say, see right there, they're not Baptists, they're fasting preacher. There's no way, they didn't even have a potluck meal, right? I know what you're thinking. So anyway, they're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And after they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them off. And at that point, it's one of a few mission journeys that Paul and his team make going across, just going, going wherever they, the Lord leads them. And you fast forward to Acts 14, the third passage I mentioned. In Acts 14, you're going to get a gold nugget here. After they preached the gospel in Derby, Acts 14.21, and made many disciples... They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. And when they had appointed elders, with an S, that's plural, for them in every church, 
and prayed with fasting that committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue the faith and by telling them, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped a verse, and that's my fault. I went from 21 to 23 and then 22. Didn't mean to do that. Okay, but anyway, in 23, they had appointed elders for them in every church, and they prayed with fasting, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So, let's review to this point. The first church, Jerusalem, had elders and deacons. The second church that we're highlighting in this continuum is Antioch because they were the missions church. God used the church in Antioch to launch out missionaries, to, to plant churches, and to spread the gospel all over the place. They, they're very significant in this whole thing. And as they're going on these mission journeys, when they go back and check out the places that they've already been, what do they do? They appoint elders, plural, and every church, singular. Now let's look at one more. So we've looked at the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the mother church. We've looked at the church in Antioch, the mission-sending church. And now the third church, and I would, I would say there's a good argument to be made. Out of all the churches in the Bible, we've got a lot of stuff on this church. Like we have a lot of information. And the answer is Ephesus. Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. And Bill Hull calls it the disciple-making church. Not that Jerusalem wasn't, they obviously were. Not that Antioch wasn't, they obviously were. But for us to relate to these three churches, really want to look at Ephesus for a few moments. How do we know so much about Ephesus? Well, you can read in the book of Acts when Paul first went to the church. Well, excuse me, I gotta, I'm getting ahead of myself. In the book of Acts when Paul first went to Ephesus. And uh, he asked them if they had the Holy Spirit. And they said, well, we've heard of the baptism of John. And he goes, oh. And then he begins to preach the gospel, tell them about Christ and all that. And they get saved and they receive the Holy Spirit. Before you leave the book of Acts, he has to say farewell to the elders from Ephesus. So you know about Ephesus through his mission journeys in the book of Acts. You know about Ephesus because we have a letter in the New Testament called the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. You know about Ephesus because when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he left him in Ephesus and he gave him instructions. So you've got, you've got passages in Acts, you've got the book of Ephesians, you've got the book of 1 Timothy, and then you also have, remember in Revelation 2, the seven Letters to the seven churches. The first one, Ephesus. They were the ones that had lost their first love. Well, anyway, there's a lot that we know biblically, scripturally, about the church in Ephesus. Let me very quickly give you a couple of things, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, Acts 19. In Acts 19, beginning in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue. Now, this, this passage is about Paul's already in Ephesus. In Acts 19, verse 8, Paul enters the synagogue, and he spoke boldly over a period of three months 
arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, uh, in my Bible that's in caps, the way. Uh, one of the, going back to terms again, okay? I guess I'm giving you a lot of history, probably more than you even wanted. Another term that believers were referred to as is followers of the way, okay? And when it says here in Acts 19, slandering the way in front of the crowd, that means they were slandering believers, Christians, in front of the crowd. They were calling them followers of the way. Why, why were they known as followers of the way? Because Jesus said, I am the truth, the life. I am the, oh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? John 14, 6, he said, I am the way. All right, so he withdrew from them, taking the disciples, Paul did, and he conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. And the Bible says this went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, now we're talking about a, you know, a huge area, both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. Then fast forward to Acts 20. In Acts 20, and I may not read all of this, but I want to read some of it. In Acts 20, there we go. In Acts 20, picking up in verse 17. Now from Miletus... Paul sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Thus, a farewell speech. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God or the whole counsel of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll just kind of throw something at you real quick if you didn't catch it. As we progress in this study and look at this teaching about elders, you probably go, well, I've been in churches all my life. You, you can't do anything unless you have a business meeting. I suppose that's true. But when it comes down to it, who appoints the elders of the church? The, the shortest answer I can give you is this. God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it has to be a call. It has to be a call from God. And you see it right there. When he says, um, you know, the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I could keep reading, but if I do, I'll preach, so I won't. So let me bring this, this uh, thing to a conclusion real quick. The bottom line is, we've looked at the structure of a disciple-making church tonight. We've traced the development of the spread of the gospel and the 
developing of churches from Jerusalem, the first church, the mother church, to Antioch, the missions sending church, to Ephesus, the disciple making church. Every church is important, but when you study church history from the scriptures, I would say those three certainly illustrate some some development from one to the next. And if you want to become a disciple-making church, I'm just going to give you some handles here, and I won't take long on this. But I would say you have to do at least four things if you're going to be a disciple-making church. Number one, you have to share the gospel. Um, It all starts there, does it not? You have to share the gospel. How did this whole thing start in in the book of Acts? When Peter stood up full of the Holy Spirit and he preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved that day. And by our modern definition terms, the first church was a mega church. 3,000 people in one day. Wow. Uh, that's number one, share the gospel. Number two, make disciples. Once you share the gospel, then you want to come alongside them. Not just share the gospel, but share your life. And you want to raise a baby believer, a new Christian, into a fully devoted follower of Jesus. You want to bring them along in that, that, uh, that phase of maturity so that they ultimately can go out and do the same thing. So you share the gospel, you make disciples, and then here's one. Number three, plant churches. Plant churches. Quite frankly, when you look at the state of our world right now, you have, um, the the need is as great now as it's ever, ever been. And if you look, there are churches that are dying and closing their doors every single day. I know I shared with y'all not long ago, a former director of missions in Tennessee where I came from, good friend of mine, Uh, One of the last times I talked to him, he says, Corey, I'm seeing churches that I said five years ago would close at some point. They're starting to close. Sad story, but true. Well, you know, for every church that closes, I think we need to plant more churches. I really do. I don't think you can have enough churches. Until everybody gets saved, there's always room for one more church. Because people need to hear the gospel. Disciples need to be made. So plant churches. I hope you saw that as we went through the progression in the book of Acts. Because that's what Antioch did. You know, they shared the gospel. They made disciples. They planted churches. And then the fourth thing, you got share gospel, make disciples, plant churches. And the fourth and final thing, develop leaders. And that sets the stage for everything we're going to look at in the, night, in the next nine weeks is you have to develop leaders. And what does the Bible, particularly the New Testament, what does it teach about leadership? What does it teach about leadership in the church? What does it look like? How does it work? Where do you start? You know, all of those things, we'll get into that. We just can't get into it tonight. I want to close with a couple more verses. 2 Timothy 2.2 Paul said to Timothy, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men will be able to teach others also and that is still true today let me close with one final passage I want you to go to the book of Philippians and I'll end on this some of you if you're like me you're going to have to look at this thing for a while because when I first was introduced to this 
well, I wasn't introduced to it. When I first discovered this and began to study this, I was like, wow, how come nobody ever told me this? If you go to Philippians, look at the very first chapter, the very first verse. Look at what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. That's the church. Including the overseers, S, plural, and deacons, plural. There you go. And remember what I said earlier, and you'll hear this as we get deeper into the study. Elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, all those terms are interchangeable to refer to the same group of people, the same office of leadership. And here in Philippi, he greets the church first, and he includes the overseers and the deacons, both plural, in a single congregation. Well, I will leave it there, and my challenge to you tonight is simply this. I would encourage you to pray that God will continue to work in our church, that we might strive to be a disciple-making church where we share the gospel, make disciples, plant churches. I've shared this with the church council for, well, it's been a while. I think it was pre-COVID, actually, Gordon. But I'll share it with y'all now. I think it would be cool someday if we birthed a church. I don't have no scheme. I don't have no plans, okay? I really don't. I'm just saying I think it would be cool. As cool as it is to see people get saved, I think it's cool to see more lighthouses. You know what I mean? And when I look around at some of these struggling, dying churches in our county, I don't know what the answer is, but whenever a lighthouse goes out, it grieves me that now the darkness is winning. I'd like to see more lighthouses. You know, if I can do anything to help that, then praise God, I'll pray to that end because it's all about the kingdom of God, okay? So share the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, and develop leaders. Develop leaders. I think we have to change our paradigm. We're so used, let me be a little crude tonight, pardon my French, but we're so used to counting butts in seats. We're so focused on seating capacity. What about sending capacity? Wouldn't it be God if it wouldn't it be great if God used our church to raise up and build up people and then send them out and to expand the kingdom of God right here and wherever He wants it to go? I think that would be awesome. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.